Hello and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker. I'm Jacob Jarvis and here with me after a busy weekend moonlighting as the Easter Bunny is Alex Andrew. Good morning, Alex. How are you? Hi, Jav. I'm fine. <laughs> Don't give away my uh, secret. <laughs> I'll try my not to. Secret. No, no more. No more. I'll let, I've let one slip there. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the, the latest Westminster psychodrama at the minute, let's begin with that, is over Keir Starmer and his Sunak attack ads. What do you think of this this furore that's going on? And is there more drama to come in the in the coming weeks? I'm conflicted, to be honest. Um, I dislike negative ads in general. I am naturally attracted to Michelle Obama's "When they go low, we go high" mm. sort of message, and in particular, I think for Starmer, who has been slurred in this way, right? Accused of being a sort of paedophile sympathizer for things that happened at the Crown Prosecution Service before his tenure. You may remember this was a slur that was amplified by Johnson that ended up with him being sort of mobbed by people shouting stuff uh, outside Parliament. And and it's still going around, right? A couple of Tory MPs repeated it online two weeks ago. And so I look at these ads and I think, how could you do this, right? Because you know what you know what this feels like from the receiving end. I mean, that's the root of my conflict, right? Because then I think, well, that's why you can do this because they gave you permission, right? They set the rules. Exactly. Is that the sort of the the conflict within the left is that we want to be we want to be better than this, but how can you how can you beat people by being better than it? all yeah. of the time, because you've then kind of got one arm tied behind your back, don't you? Well, I guess so. Although, really, it, like I said, we, sh- we should be aspiring to um, better politics. But, but the point is, if they can character assassinate you in line like this, why should you have to play nice? Yeah. Why, do we, why do we hold progressives to a higher standard? You know, Brexiters were putting out targeted ads with big red arrows saying 85 million Turks were about to invade the UK or that Jean-Claude Juncker was personally clubbing polar bear cubs to death. And I just think if Remain had fought dirtier and won, would I have objected to that result because of the way we got there? If the good chap theory of government has collapsed because our current government is basically a collection of shysters. Why are we still demanding our side are good chaps? I, I, it's a difficult one to resolve because equally you could flip it around and say that unless, you know, we are also part of the political discourse in this country and unless we raise that, the level of that debate, then we are just participating in debasing it. Um, and not only that, that, you know, conservatives are better at it. And if we if we get into the mud with them, we'll just we'll just get as dirty as they are, but they'll still be better at it. Yeah, I saw I saw a quote and I, uh, I can't remember who it was from, but saying if you if you start to, to roll with the pigs, you'll get covered in mud. And the other thing is they like it. They like getting dirty. So so on that, do you think it's potentially more risk? than it's worth then. Why isn't Starmer just letting Sunak keep on making his own mistakes as he had been up until this point? Well, the problem, I think, is not so much about p- 
policies. It's not so much about these particular ads. It's not. It's it's not about anything as specific as that, right? It's about the news matrix. You cannot let one side flood the news and hope people see through the stories and the spin to the actual failures, especially when such a chunk of the British press will support the Tory government, whatever it does, whatever it says. It will put out the government spin. It will put out the government line. So I think Sunak's strategy for the next few months before the election, by the way, you will remember I have said since at least December last year, it will be an earlier than expected election. Mm. And everyone seems now to be making those sorts of noises when everyone thought I was crazy. Yeah, well, I did see that the, the Telegraph, though, had some talk of it being a, a late autumn election there. Why do you think there's sort of this this questioning around it? Why do you think that's still... How can we're not getting clear on the talk of when there might be one now? Does it Would it not make sense for them to kind of start briefing a firm date and start prepping for it? Yeah, I mean, it. the difficulty for them is these five missions that he set out, right? They need to look as if at least they're going towards making progress on them. And so really weirdly, one of the big factors will be the weather this summer. If it's a particularly good summer and we get a, a, a larger than usual uh, level of small boat crossings, um, then... Sunak will look as if he's failing that target. Um, and so he will want to have another go over the next winter season, as it were, when numbers reduce naturally and uh, and maybe go for a spring-summer election next year before um, uh, the, the actual crossings happen again. If the weather is worse than expected this summer and the crossings are lower than usual, then Sunak can claim, look, I'm making progress on this. They've reduced by whatever the figure is, 20%, 30%. Last year was particularly high, so they will be able to show some reduction, I think, if the weather helps them, and then go for an election even this coming winter. Um, so, so a lot of it is up in the air. A lot of it depends on what happens to inflation. A lot of it depends what happens to economic growth. Basically, the government will choose the moment where, based on its five goals, it looks as if it's making some progress and go for a quick election at that point, which means that it's a movable feast, basically. On, on immediate problems for the government, there's the junior doctor strikes this week. How are we still talking about walkouts? And it, it, does it feel like we're anywhere closer to getting a settlement on this? I mean, this is really major, right? Because it's sandwiched between a sort of big bank holiday weekend and the next weekend, and it's four days of strikes, which means it's basically maximising a, a period of people taking regular leave, etc., and making it a sort of 10-day stretch where many hospitals will be without junior doctors in them doing regular stuff, okay? I'm, I'm setting aside emergency things um, and, and treatment that they've said will go on. I think the, the fundamental issue is, can we as a society in one breath say, you as a group cannot withdraw your labor because you are that essential to the functioning 
of this country and at the same time we cannot afford to pay you properly right yeah. and we are not paying junior doctors properly uh, you know i had a a, a minor procedure uh, uh, last week and i spoke to a lot of people and i know the sort of hours they do i know the sort of rates they get i mean you know a, a, the base rate of 14 pounds 9 pence for a junior doctor for for a highly skilled highly qualified professional is disgusting and okay i understand that's just the base rate i understand that most of them when you factor in other stuff they get uh, 20 plus that is still a, in an incredibly low rate right well, there is the huge disintakes i mean there is huge dis- not not just that remember we are now getting the first crop of people coming through the first crop of doctors coming through who will have paid thousands and thousands of pounds yeah. in fees for the benefit of studying to be someone that heals us right yeah. because they will be the first crop coming out fully trained that had to pay university fees and so an average doctor will leave uni at the moment with 80k upwards of debt right 80 grand worth of debt and you put them in a situation where they get paid 14 pounds an hour or even if it's 20 pounds an hour with the the various little extras but they do incredibly long hours they say goodbye to any kind of social or family life you put them in a pressurized situation just after a pandemic through which i'm sure they were hoping will surely now that society has recognized our value the negotiation on pay after the pandemic will look very very different and then they come out of the pandemic and the government basically says sorry applause is all you get so there is a really profound level of anger in the profession and the danger is because doctors are a highly highly desirable speciality around the world if we don't act on this we will simply suffer an unprecedented brain drain and lose our doctors to other anglosphere country countries you know and already there is evidence that a huge amount of people are emigrating to new zealand to australia to canada to america to practice the profession there um and so we need to do something yeah, stephen barclay's been so stubborn here on this do you think there's any any chance of movement there and is it is it this ideological stubbornness or is part of it just that the government it's another level of incompetency i mean i just can't see stephen barkley being the person to be qualified enough to actually resolve this problem at this point mm. even if he were to actually want to in good faith i mean he's an idiot uh, yeah. <laughs> he's an idiot we know this we know this from his time at the department for exiting the european union he's a, a bona fide certified idiot and the worst kind of idiot because he's a stubborn uh, uh, yeah. idiot and so on one hand i can't see any progress being made with him at the helm but on the other hand i know that progress will be made so there will be a settlement because ultimately doctors have the power here yeah so the government will have to offer them something that they accept at some point
On Brexit messes, as you mentioned it there with Barclays' former former brief, we've seen the queues at Dover, which definitely aren't about Brexit, as we're told, but we, <laughs> even though we talked about it on Oh God, What Now? and maybe suggested that it could be a little bit about Brexit. What a, is a happening? Just, just a, a tiny, bit, yeah. just a, a yeah. smidgen of Brexit. Yeah. What's happening with this backtrack on scrapping EU laws that we've seen? Um, so there was a scoop by The Observer over the weekend, um, which we had heard rumours of before that the government is planning to drop the the report stage of the retained EU bill in the Lords, um, which it was meant to happen soon after Easter. And so its timing now will float a little bit and definitely go after the local elections. Um, and possibly go after the next general election um, because there is this sort of twilight where bills can be kept alive without without being formally trashed but but not allocated time um, to go through the formal stages in parliament which which means they just exist you know they're schrodinger's bills they they both exist and not exist and this is because there there were wide uh, ranging reports of a massive bust up coming in the lords from a cross party uh, rump of peers which is quite important so it was actually um tory peers leading this revolt and they were going to make changes to the legislation that was so fundamental, the government were, would either have to sort of negotiate significant changes to the law or risk uh, a defeat and ping-pong. And, you know, the, the public indignity, I guess, of Rishi Sunak seemed to be perpetually failing to get Brexit policy through just like his predecessors had failed and he, and he wants to avoid that right is he is he dodging this battle with the lords but teeing himself up for a bit of a battle with his backbenchers though are we going to see the the ERG and the usual suspects kicking off here not really i mean they will grumble but they won't undermine the local election that's about to happen i think um i think they will play nice until then at least and don't don't forget the last vote we saw in the Commons on the Windsor framework exposed them of being quite short of the of the power high watermark that they established during the May years where they had regularly and easily 60 upwards votes with them. And they now tend to get 20-ish. Um, even on stuff where they have support from two former prime ministers, as they did on the on the Windsor framework, and so it, it, it's interesting. It it has created a dynamic where every confrontation is not just a risk for Sunak; it is also a risk for the ERG because unless it goes well and is significant, then it shows the ERG to be powerless, um, and so. I think they will wait until after the locals, and if the result is poor, they will suggest it is because Sunak is not tacking enough to the Eurosceptic vote, is not tacking enough to the right, um, and, and so they will roll it up into one big attack, because at that point they will have better support. They will have a lot of worried 
MPs who are looking at their local election result and seeing what that might mean for their own um, slim majorities. Looking away from Westminster now for a second, we've got Joe Biden visiting Belfast this week mm. and he'll be meeting up with Sunak. What can we what can we expect in this visit? Firm encouragement, I think, to sort it out for parties to get together and start power sharing at Stormont again. You know, Stormont being functional is a central, central part of the Good Friday agreements. And while it is um, in this sort of deadlock, um, there are dangers of sectarian violence bubbling up, of all sorts of stuff going wrong. Basically, we have to get back to Giorgio and the instrument of Giorgio in Northern Ireland is Stormont. So it's all about uh, firmly encouraging people to get back into Stormont and start power sharing. Encouraging, not bullying, because we know, and I, and I think Democrat presidents will be keenly aware of this, that unionist politicians do not respond well to anything that rises above the level of encouragement. You know, they, they are famously unwilling to engage with people who they feel are trying to bully them. So, Alex, what's going on in Ukraine at the moment? And what can the, the leaked documents that came out over the weekend have been circulating tell us about the conflict so far? Okay, so, I mean, it, it's embarrassing for, for the um, State Department, I think, no, no doubt about it. It doesn't tell us a huge amount of new information. It just confirms a lot of stuff that we sort of knew and gathers it all in one place. Its major problem is the fact that it reveals a a security weakness, as it were, and creates tension between Ukraine and its key ally, America, right? Other than that, I mean, it fills in a lot of detail. One map includes includes a sort of mud-frozen ground timeline which assesses how quickly they think the thaw will come and how quickly the ground will dry out. You know, this is all stuff we knew. We knew about what infrastructure is under pressure. We knew about estimates of losses in Russian soldiers and Ukraine losses. We we sort of knew all of that. I mean, in in both cases, for instance, when you're looking at those those figures, the, the Pentagon has described describes them in the actual document as low confidence figure figures, right? Because we the information we have is imperfect. The most worrying aspect I think will be that the, 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 the source of the leak is still unknown, um, uh, possibly not to the intelligence community, but certainly to journalists and to us, the public. I mean, it, it's difficult, right, because leaked documents of any kind tend to be glorified as the definitive position, and they are often not. You know, there's a lot of people 
churning out a lot of analysis, sometimes from junior positions, and you have no way of knowing which bit of it is taken totally seriously, which bit of it is considered on the on the sort of extreme sides, uh, what bit of it has changed. Some of these documents are up to six weeks old. You know, these situations change very quickly. What bit was dumped on purpose? You know, if the, if the defense, uh, if the Pentagon is basically aware there's about to be a, a, a leak or a document dump, I mean, it would seem to me quite cogent for them to dump loads of extra misinformation, um, loads of stuff that they want you, they they want Russia to think. Right? You might remember there were big leaks about Ukraine attacking to the south uh, in the beginning of last autumn, um, and then there was a big offensive to the east. So, I mean, you never quite know what of it is information, what of it is misinformation. You never quite know the quality of the parts of it that are information, how seriously they, they're taken, how up-to-date they are. I mean, it's a, big, it's a big leak, and it has caused the Ukrainian government to readjust some of its planning. But, you know, it's not like there's not going to be Russian intelligence on this. It's not like the Russians are not aware of what the Ukrainians are planning. You know, this is, this is war. Uh, and and both sides will have intelligence. We've seen major protests against the government in in Georgia over the weekend. Mm. What's what's going on there at the moment? Well, I mean, Sunday was the latest one. A, a, a huge amount of protesters outside Georgian Parliament, accusing the ruling party of being under the sway of Russia, backsliding on democracy. You may remember this all started after mass protests. Um, uh, which forced government to abandon a bill that would have required non-government organizations receiving money from abroad to register as an agent of foreign influence, I think was the was the reason. The rally was organized by the main opposition party in support of jailed former president uh, uh, Mikhail Saakashvili. The importance, I think, goes beyond Georgia, right? Because... The importance of it is this. Russia is really busy at the moment, right? Putin is really busy at the moment with Ukraine. If those satellite states like Georgia, like Chechnya, like, you know, like Belarus, if they begin to erupt into um, a civil disobedience and protests, Putin's capacity to do something about it is extremely limited because in the past, when there have been protests like that, the threat has always been from the national government that if you don't quiet down, we'll have to let the Russian army in. We'll have to declare some sort of state of emergency and ask Putin for help. That's always been the implicit and sometimes, in the case of Belarus, explicit threat. So that threat is now not credible. And if we saw protests spread to those satellite states that form a sort of protective ring around Russia, um, this could be big, big trouble for Putin. Finally, we've seen these military drills in Taiwan. What is China up to at the moment? So China has finished uh, three days of military drills. Um, they included 
what they call sealing off the island, simulations of targeted strikes. It's posturing. I don't wish to minimize it, but it's nowhere near as grand and reactionary as when Nancy Pelosi's surprise visit to Taiwan. That provoked a much bigger reaction. So one reading of it will be that C is flexing his muscle, uh, having strengthened his hold on the presidency recently. He's now effectively president for life after the last uh, Communist Party uh, conference, which changed the rules, allowing him to stay on for more than two terms. So one interpretation would be that he's flexing uh, that muscle and that, you know, this it foreshadows big trouble in the re region. Another equally valid interpretation would be that he is flexing his muscle in the minimum possible way. Um, so he's doing enough to appease the nationalist elements of his own party and country without actually escalating, without doing anything proper big. Um, and that might be a slightly more positive interpretation. Could he feel emboldened, though, to go to go further due to his influence on Vladimir Putin and the West seeming like they're almost trying to... We saw Emmanuel Macron is hoping that she will have an influence over Putin when it comes to Ukraine. Could that boost she to think he can get away with a little more than he might have been able to in the past? Maybe. I mean, our history in the last, I would say, decade, slightly more, actually, starting with... Assad, at the very least, is to have ascribed rational motives and uh, rational thought processes to people who then appear to operate on a slightly more emotional level. And the rational thing for C would be to say that actually, because of the current instability with the Ukraine war, he needs stability elsewhere. He can't be fighting fires on two fronts with China trying to recover economically from the pandemic and its, its economy being really at a very delicate cusp with so much of it being tied in land development that's currently failing and, and the sort of internal demand of the, the rising middle class in China, which is also currently failing. So what he needs is a period of stability around the world, basically, so people start buying lots of stuff from China again. That's the rational course of action. But, you know, if the last decade plus has taught us anything, is that sometimes the rational course of action doesn't materialize. Sometimes an irrational thing happens. Alex, thank you for joining me this morning. Thank you for chatting to me. Listeners, if you enjoyed this, remember to tune in for another bunk tomorrow. Also, you can support our work on Patreon for £3 a month, which will get you early access to ad-free episodes, plus a shout-out on this show. Here's Alex with today's. Big thanks and uh, happy Tuesday morning, unusually, to Blake Eshford, Mark Prosser and Asta Evans. Stop. 
Start Your Week from the Bunker was written and presented by Jacob Jarvis with Alex Andreev. The producer was Kasia Tomashevich with audio production by me, Jay Bailey. The group editor is Andrew Harrison with music by Kenny Dickinson. Start Your Week from the Bunker is a Podmasters production. Music